Now I invite you to turn with me online or on paper to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Uh, it's, in the digital, it's also in the digital order of worship uh, that you downloaded earlier. Uh, today, as I've been saying, is Trinity Sunday. What is that? It's the Sunday uh, that just about marks the halfway point of the liturgical year. So remember, we started all the way back in December with the season of Advent, and we've been uh, walking this road looking in Scripture, in all of Scripture, at how Christ saves us. We've talked about His incarnation, how God adopted us in Him, how He is revealed in the Scriptures, uh, how He suffered for us. Do you remember how we said that we have to delight in the light so that we can endure in the dark? We said it before the pandemic, we've said it during the pandemic, and we're saying it now. Delight in the light so we can endure in the dark. And then we celebrated Christ's resurrection at Easter, and we've explored how to live in light of the resurrection. And we came to the next two important saving events in Christ's life, His ascension, uh, and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And through these seasons of the church calendar, uh, we've looked through all the different parts of Scripture at the person and work of Jesus. And we've seen what is true and what to do as a result. So today we come to Trinity Sunday, and I'll call it uh, our liturgical stopgap. What I mean is that we've been talking about Jesus, fully human, fully divine. We've talked about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, But if you've missed it, or if you haven't thought much about God as triune or tripersonal in the conversation, today is the day to focus on that purposefully. And there's no better place to look at the Trinity in Scripture than the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. So here now, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Please pray with me. And now, O Lord, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. May the meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth, and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Help us to see you, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in all your fullness, and grow us through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you see the gorilla? Did you see the gorilla? Uh, Earlier in the video, a gorilla walked through the middle of the screen. He stopped, he pounded his chest, and then he walked on. Do you know the video I'm talking about? It's not actually this live stream, if that's what you were thinking. Uh, But there's a famous YouTube video uh, about the invisible gorilla. Uh, at the beginning of this video on YouTube, if you, look, if you go to it and look up Invisible Gorilla, uh, do it later this afternoon, uh, you're asked to watch kids in two different color t-shirts uh, passing a basketball back and forth. And the idea is that you're supposed to look at one group of kids in one color of t-shirts and count how many times they pass the basketball. Uh, 
But because you're so hyper-focused on that, you miss that in the middle of the video, someone in a gorilla suit comes through the middle of the screen, stops and beats their chest and walks on. Of course, when you watch the video a second time, you feel really silly when that huge ape walks across the screen. Friends, uh, the Trinity is the gorilla that we miss often in the Christian life. Uh, One theologian I read put it this way, if it were illegal to be Trinitarian, what evidence would there be to convict you of a crime if you're a Christian? Trinity Sunday is a moment to stop, to rewind the video of our Christian life and look for that gorilla. Sometimes the triune God is lost amidst our other important spiritual conversations. Uh, We think, "Isn't, isn't the Trinity a topic for nerdy theological types and not really for just normal people? We forget how important it is that the Christian God is triune. The last thing Jesus says to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew is to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are important words, and this is an important idea for every Christian. So we need to look at this passage called the Great Commission and see what's so great about the Trinity. Why is this topic worth our time and attention today, even knowing that there are so many other important topics of conversation to think about that are taking place in our world, in our country right now? What we need to see is that we must live a Trinitarian faith because the Trinity is our starting point for knowing God. And we'll see the Trinity as the starting point for knowing God when we look here at who to worship why to worship, and how to respond. Who to worship, why to worship, and how to respond. So let's start. Who should you worship? I mean, okay, the answer probably seems obvious, the fact that you're listening to a Christian worship service and a Christian preacher right now. We worship Jesus as God. But it might not be quite as simple as that. Let's look at verses 16 and 17 of this passage. Jesus directs the 11 disciples to meet him on a mountain. And it might seem strange that the mountain here is not named and that we don't hear about this plan beforehand in the gospel, but it's not the specific place that it's important for us to know as much as what kind of place it is. It's a mountain. We go up to the mountain to get a view of the land all around. You go to the mountain when you want to see the whole forest and not just the individual trees. Where did God give the law to his people in the Old Testament? He did it on a mountain. In the Exodus, after he brought them through the Red Sea, he gathered them at the foot of the mountain. And it was a mountain that they could not touch. Uh, The elders could go part of the way up, but there was only one person among them who could go all the way to the top of the mountain, and and he was called by God to do it. It was Moses. He went up to the top of the mountain, and he brought down the law of God for the people, the law that revealed God's character, the starting point of knowing him for his people. And here, when the 11 go up to the mountain, and it seems like maybe there were some others with them, this wasn't a completely closed meeting. And they didn't stop at the base of the mountain. They actually went all the way up. And they were there on the mountain with Jesus. They didn't need to wait at the bottom for Jesus to go up. He had already ascended to the top. He had gone to the cross and had come back down and had come out of the grave. And now there was no need for them to be separated from him and waiting, that they could be with him on the mountain. What do they do up there? 
They worship him, it says in verse 17. Now, why didn't Matthew just put the period there? I feel like that would have been a nice ending to a nice story. But there's this annoying little detail in that verse. In three words, but some doubted. Does that bother you? Or does it help you? Uh, I'll be honest, it it bothers me. I do want to tie a bow on this story. I want to have everyone see and everyone believe. Uh, But for others, this moment in the story actually uh, makes it a little more believable. I mean, after all, if you saw someone die a gruesome death and be put in a tomb, and then that tomb was empty and the person reappeared to you, aren't you more likely to think that you're crazy rather than that person had been resurrected? But some doubted. This word doubted is not the most common word in Greek for doubt. It's it's used in the Bible only one other time in the New Testament, and that's by the apostle Peter. And it's in an interesting place in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the place where Peter stepped out of the boat during a storm onto the water when he saw Jesus walking on the water. Right? Peter was in the boat and he looked out and he saw Jesus walking on water and he said, Master, command me to come to you. And Jesus did. And Peter got out of the boat and he starts walking on water. But then when he looks around and he sees the, uh, he sees the effects of the wind on the water and the waves, he begins to sink. And Jesus grabs him and puts him back in the boat. And what does Jesus say to him? O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt Same word. Was Jesus done with Peter after that? No. Did Peter keep doubting after that? Yes, but it was a little different. That episode of doubt actually led to more faith. Peter's moment of doubt actually led him over time to more faith in Jesus. When it says in verse 17 that they worshipped him, but some doubted, it's not talking about uh, the disciples being there like, uh, like some kind of atheist, like uh, Richard Dawkins is there with them too, you know, and, and some of them worship, but like Richard Dawkins is standing in the background. And he says, no, now hold on, wait a minute. You're going to have to prove more of this to me. Uh, you know, it's not that. What we have here actually is humble doubt. It's doubt with some understanding It's a doubt that has curiosity. It's a doubt that actually can grow into firm faith. Your doubt can do that too. The disciples worship Jesus, but some who worship have a stronger faith and some have a weaker faith. They trust him and they can grow in their trust of him. So can we. It doesn't tell us exactly what doubts some of them had. I mean, it's safe to think that they trusted Jesus the man, but trusting Jesus as God may have been harder. They may trust him as their personal problem solver. I mean, after all, he had done uh, miracles of healing. He had done miracles of food. Uh, He solves those problems. But could they trust him as God on that mountain, as God who had put that mountain there in the first place? Could they trust him as the God of creation? Could they trust him also as the God of their redemption? The God who led them out in a whole new kind of exodus, an exodus from their own slavery to sin. You see how high the stakes are on the mountain? The stakes are the same for you. 
Do you trust Jesus as your personal problem solver, the the guy that you pray to when you lose your car keys, and maybe you pray to him before you take a test at school, Uh, but do you worship him as the one who determined the names of the stars and put them in their place? Do you worship him as the embodiment of God's wisdom? Do you have faith in the Son of God as God? Now, you've thought about who you're on the mountain worshiping. Let's think about why we worship him. Uh, Why do we worship Jesus? This is really where we start to uh, hit the Trinity part. In verse 18, Jesus gives them a reason why to worship him. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, Who gave it to him? Who exactly gave Jesus this authority? Well, who do you think? Who has all authority in heaven and on earth? Only God could have that. So God gives Jesus all authority, not just some authority, not just authority on earth. Jesus gets it all, all authority in heaven and on earth. Do you feel us bumping up against the mystery of the Trinity? God gives Jesus everything, but it's inconceivable that in doing that, that God would become any less God. And Jesus has made it plain before this that he is the Son of God, but on the mountain his disciples worship him, and you should only worship God. So God gave God all authority? There's some kind of distinction that's necessary between these two persons for this reading to even make sense. Now, I just want you to catch me. The reason I'm saying all of this in a convoluted way is because you may have grown up in the church and you may have heard the word Trinity a lot. Uh, And you hear the terms Father, Son, and Holy Spirit a lot. But sometimes you hear it so much uh, that this amazing mystery becomes kind of commonplace. This mystery of the Trinity should actually make your head spin a little bit every time you think about it. No other religion in the world has this. This is unique to Christianity. Here we have God the Father, God the Son. They both have all the authority over heaven and earth. They are both God, yet they are distinct persons, Father and Son. And then in verse 19, we hear about the Holy Spirit as well. And now we have three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do these three relate to each other? Is there a simple way to understand this? You're looking for me to give you a good illustration about the Trinity, right? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. You know why? Because there isn't a good one. But maybe you've heard some of the bad ones before. Uh, there's, uh, there's the three-leaf clover analogy. There's the ice water steam one. That's especially bad. There's even one about a cherry pie that I used to use. Um, but there's a problem with all of those things. They're things. They're things relating as things. They are not persons relating in relationship. And that's the key to the Trinity. Uh, For years, the cherry pie one was my favorite because it seemed like sort of a middle of the road between oneness and threeness. You know, a good cherry pie, when it comes out of the oven, the filling is hot under the crust and it's all uh, there together. And you may score the pie on top with a knife into three discernible pieces, uh, but underneath the filling is all throughout and it's one. It's one uh, essence. Um, I I tried that one on a theologian once, and I thought I was really clever. And he looked at me and he said, what is essence? 
could you go get me a bucket of essence? And I just stood there with my mouth hanging open. You see, in that bad analogy, where's the relationship of persons? We keep trying in the church to put God under our microscope for examination, and he won't fit. The finite, or the, the finite cannot contain the infinite. But we'll come a lot closer to understanding God if we look at the scripture and see that if we are to know anything about him, we're going to know it by his acts in history. And those acts in history are altogether uh, tri-personal. We see these three persons. We know him by what he does, not by weird analogies. He creates the world out of nothing. And over the waters, the spirit hovers like a hen brooding over her nest. And then God speaks. His word goes out and things happen. We know him by what he does. Hovering over the waters, speaking out his word, purposing to create out of nothing. God purposes also to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. He gives his words to Moses to speak to Pharaoh. He sends plagues. He parts the sea. He goes before them as a pillar of cloud and as a pillar of fire. And on the mountain, he gives them his words that his people are to do. And in the doing of his words, his people will know him. We sometimes talk about the Trinity like it's a puzzle, uh, sort of like three weird pieces that we try to put together and think about with other little pieces on the side. Uh, I hope that those of you who are listening to this who are married don't do your marriage like that. Marriage is the ultimate on-the-job training. You learn how to be married by being married. It's ultimately relational. Marriage is more than just something you are. More importantly, marriage is something you do every day. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons who are one God and who have been one God doing their Godness from eternity past into the present and on into eternity future. They are so close and so personal and so relational that they are one God being. Now, I know Muslims accuse uh, us Christians of bad math in this, right? Saying that one plus one plus one cannot equal one. Of course, my response to that is, but one times one times one certainly is one. Theologian John Frame helps us see the Trinity in the parts of the Old Testament. In Psalm 33, 6, it says, by the word of the Lord, were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Frame says, here we find together the Lord, his word, and his breath or spirit. This is what I have, Frame goes on to say, this is what I have sometimes called the linguistic model of the Trinity. The Father is the speaker, the Son is the word, and the Spirit is the breath that carries the word to the hearer. He goes on to point out other divine triads in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah 48, 16, Isaiah 63, 9 and 10, Haggai 2, 5 through 7. We really could go back and spend the rest of the afternoon uh, finding those triads where we see them in the Old Testament. And then you can find not only those Trinitarian uh, hints in the Old Testament, but your eyes can be opened to look for that gorilla in the New Testament as well, where it's even more prevalent. Now, we need to talk about how to respond to the Trinity. 
Uh, and Jesus tells us what to do in these last two verses. But before we look at them, let me remind you one more time to look for the Trinity as you read Scripture. Right? Several weeks ago, we saw the Trinity present in Jesus' baptism. The Son was baptized. The Spirit descended like a dove. The Father spoke, saying that in Jesus, He was well-pleased. The last two weeks, we talked about the Ascension and Pentecost. Uh, Listen to how the Apostle Peter uh, speaks in a Trinitarian way in Acts 2, verse 33. He's talking about Jesus, and he said that he is exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Jesus is exalted. He received from the Father. He poured out the Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in action. The gospel of salvation, if you are saved, it is because of the action of the triune God. I like how uh, theologian Robert Lethem puts it, that a general pattern is evident throughout the economy of creation, providence, and grace from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. He says, in turn, our response to God's grace is enabled by the Spirit, offered through the Son, and resting on the Father. Another theologian and pastor, Herman Bavink, said, if God is indeed triune, this has to be supremely important for all things, according to the Apostle Paul, are from Him and through Him and to Him. That's Romans 11.36. So once we see that all authority has been given to Jesus, what does he tell us to do? How do we respond to his words in verses 19 and 20? Uh, In the original language of the passage, there is one finite verb that controls the whole thought of the sentence, and that is make disciples. And there are three answers to how we are to make disciples. One Go to all nations. Two, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And three, teach those folks to keep everything that Jesus has commanded. Christians tend to emphasize one or maybe two of these three things in the mission of the church, right? Uh, Missionaries tend to read this passage and emphasize the going. Sacramentalists may emphasize the baptizing. Intellectuals may emphasize the teaching. But all three of these things are commanded to everyone who is a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples. Christians must go. They must not wait for people to come to them. It does not mean that you must be a missionary overseas, uh, though some of you are definitely called to do that. Many people are. What it does mean is that there is no one who is off-limits to tell about the God that you serve, right? To the Jews of Jesus' day, it meant that the Gentiles were not off-limits. In fact, it would have been wrong for them uh, to treat the Gentiles uh, as if the gospel was off-limits. Now, right now, in the church in America, it means something for black and white people, We need to quit treating each other in ways that make it seem like the gospel is off limits to the other. Uh, What do I mean? Just very briefly, in the early church, there was a clash of culture. Jews experienced the gospel in a different way than Gentiles. And the great experiment of grace in the early church was to look at the grace of God and for these two cultures to come together as one. They had to have 
on-the-job training under the apprenticeship of the triune God, the tri-personal God, who has been one God in three persons from eternity past, and he would teach them how to relate on earth, even amid deep cultural, racial, and national divides. And the church in that day didn't become not Jewish and not Gentile, it became Christian. There were Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and sometimes Christians do Bible study now by uh, talking about and finding, uh, we sometimes say, timeless principles in Scripture. And once we find these so-called timeless principles, we apply them to our situation. But sometimes in that quest, uh, we miss the plain principles found by God who acts in history, in a specific time and a specific place. Jesus came to earth. Yahweh in sandals, in a specific, uh, in a, in a specific culture, on a, in a specific nation. He was not a timeless man. He was a Jew of the first century. And yet, he brought Jews and Gentiles together in himself, making one new man out of the two, as Paul says in Ephesians. Don't we need that today? So, what Jesus told his disciples to do, we must all do. Make disciples by going to ta-ethne, that's the Greek word, the nations. And that actually, ta-ethne, was a cultural, racial term that Jews of the first century used. The nations, ta-ethne, meant everybody who is not a Jew. Everybody who is not like us. Go to the people outside your tribe. If you're going to obey Jesus in making disciples, whoever you are, you must go to the people outside your tribe. Now, who's that for you? What are we to go with? Christians go baptizing in the name of the triune God. That doesn't mean you run out into the crowd spraying water. Baptism is a means of identification. It's an identity marker. It's putting on the team jersey. When you go out into the world, what team jersey marks you? For Christians, it is the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's how Christians recognize each other on the same team. And the name of the triune God protects you. And the name of the triune God is what you are discipling people into. And there is one last way that Christians make disciples. They teach people to keep the commandments that Jesus gave. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. In the first century, that required Jews and Greeks in the early church to get together and to make sure that Greek widows didn't get overlooked when food was passed out. The disciples had to appoint leaders to make sure that this love happened. Where do we need leaders? to help us do love. I think about some very good leaders in, uh, in our denomination this week who have had conversations and have been helping me think about how to do love. And uh, for some of you who are local to us and on our email list, uh, you'll see uh, some resources. You've seen some resources this week and you'll see more that we've put to put out there. What are those for? They're not part of some left or right or conservative or liberal ideology. They're to try and obey the command of Jesus and do love. Jesus upheld the sixth commandment, do not murder. 
And he clarified that we are, we are our brother's keeper when he said, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. How shall we keep those commandments as disciples of Jesus today? And how will we teach others to do the same? Look, I'm going to need some help because of my failures in keeping these commandments, because my failures in this are greater than my obedience. But that's why Jesus leaves us with hope. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is with us. He is Immanuel, God with us. One commentator I read reminded me in Matthew 1.23, he is God with us to redeem his people. In Matthew 18.20, he is God with us to purify his people. And here, Jesus is God with us to disciple the nations. I'll just leave you with this thought from Herman Bavink and close. The Christian mind remains unsatisfied until all of existence is referred back to the triune God and until the confession of God's Trinity functions at the center of our thought and life. There is unity in diversity, diversity in unity. Indeed, this order and harmony is present in Him absolutely. In the case of creatures, we see only a faint analogy of it. But God with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is enough to gather us, to purify us, and to send us each other and to each other and into the world. Let's pray. God Almighty, renew us in your image and send us to be part of your work of renewal in our world today that you may be honored as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit unto the ages until you bring heaven back to earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.